0: Well, hello again, everybody. Uh, It's my privilege and honor to get to begin our series on 1 Timothy today. I'm really excited for us to begin walking through this book. It's a book that I love. I think it's going to be a really enriching and encouraging and edifying season for our church family as we go through this book together over the next few months. Today, I'll start us off with some basic background info, some historical context, and then we'll look at the first couple of verses of the book together. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Bible says that you have sent your Holy Spirit to us so that we might be built up in our knowledge and our understanding of you and of your word. So God, we know that the preaching of your word is a spirit-filled activity. And so I pray, God, that your spirit would fill me with wisdom this morning, with the ability to teach, that I might communicate clearly and effectively the truths of your word. God, I pray also that your spirit would prepare fertile soil in each of our hearts that we might receive with humility and with eagerness the truths of your word. God, for those that are listening that do not know you, we pray that you would convict them of their sin this very morning, draw them to repentance and to faith in you. God, we know that the outward preaching of your word will be vain and useless if it is not accompanied by the inward work of the spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts today. We pray all this in the name of your Son, our blessed hope, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so why 1 Timothy? Why did Taylor pick 1 Timothy? Why are we going to spend several months studying this book verse by verse together? What's so great about 1 Timothy? Uh, 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, make up a group of books that we call the Pastoral Epistles. Basically, they're letters or epistles that Paul wrote to other pastors, or as he's often going to call them, elders. So, before we get into this, we need to establish some terminology. Um, Pastor and elder are going to be basically interchangeable during this series. We believe that the Bible presents two main offices in the church there are the servants of the church, that's the deacon, and then there are the leaders of the church, and they're called different things in the New Testament. Sometimes it's pastor, sometimes it's overseer, but most often it's actually elder. So while we don't say elder very often, it's not really a word that we use a lot, the Bible uses it a lot. So whenever Paul says elder, we can think pastor. And so because this is a book from one pastor or elder to another pastor, these books give us important information about the qualifications for becoming a pastor. Um, essential advice for how pastors should conduct themselves, and they give encouragement to church leaders who are in difficult situations. But it would be a mistake for us to think that this book is just for pastors. This book is vital for all Christians. First of all, we know from Second Timothy, That all scripture is breathed out by God and is what profitable for teaching, for training in righteousness, so all of the Bible is profitable to all Christians. We just finished Esther, and it wasn't always easy, but it was always encouraging and edifying because it's the word of God. Um, David Platt, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, points out some important questions that this book is going to address that are relevant to all of our lives. So here are some of the things we're going to touch on. How do Old Testament laws apply to Christians today? What different roles should men and women play in the church? Who is qualified to be an elder or a deacon? How do we identify false teachers? How should the church support and care for widows? What should wealthy Christians do with their money? So you can see there's something here for everyone. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for deacons. It's for all kinds of Christians. Before we get into the text, we also need to talk about some individuals, some figures, some people that are going to be important in this story. And I know many of you are already very familiar with Paul and with Timothy. But by the grace of God, we have in our congregation today some new believers. We have children. um, We probably even have some non-believers. So it'll be helpful for all of us if we review some of the basic details, some of the relevant details of these men's lives. So Paul is the author. It's not uh, by Timothy. It's to Timothy. Paul is the author. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. As I'm sure many of you know, he was born a Jew. He persecuted Christians violently at first then he had a dramatic encounter with Christ, which led to his conversion and his appointment as an apostle. And his transformation is one of the most powerful pictures we have of God's redeeming grace in the New Testament. He was essentially a missionary, he planted many churches, um, but what we don't always talk about is he was not just concerned with planning churches, but with maintaining them, with their longevity, with the health of these churches. This is why he sent men like Timothy and Titus to help guide these churches. This is why he wrote epistles back and forth. He wasn't concerned with just planting the seeds. He wanted to make sure that they were watered and tended properly. Paul did not marry. He did not have children, but he considered Timothy to be sort of a son of sorts to him. Timothy was much younger than Paul. Paul frequently refers to Timothy as his spiritual son. He opens this letter by referring to Timothy as his true child, In the faith. So Paul loved, loved Timothy. In the book of Philippians, he actually talks about Timothy. He's sending Timothy to the church at Philippi. And he says about Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. So Paul loved Timothy. He thinks of him as his son. And he's sending him, as we're going to see in a minute, to a pretty difficult assignment. There's, there's a serious issue in a church that he is sending Timothy to address. So he writes this letter with some advice about how to handle it, but also with some encouragement. Um, final note about Paul. He most likely wrote this letter after the events of Acts. There's a little debate about this, but most people agree this is written after he's released from Rome. So everything in the book of Acts has already happened. This is an older um, more experienced version of Paul that we're hearing from in 1 Timothy. Okay, let's talk about Timothy now. Timothy, as I said, is a young guy. He traveled with Paul, eventually became one of his most trusted allies. Timothy's grandmother and his mother were Jewish Christians. His father was a Greek, was a Gentile. Um, His mother and grandmother were a part of the church in Lystra, and this is how Paul meets Timothy. He knows Timothy's mother and grandmother. He speaks very highly of the faith heritage that Timothy receives from those women. And he meets him in Lystra and is encouraged to bring him along on his journeys. Timothy is by no means a main character in the New Testament, but he does feature semi-prominently. So here's just a quick survey of some of the things Timothy does in the New Testament. And note how often he is sent into difficult situations. Paul meets Timothy in Acts 16. In Acts 17, just one chapter later, they're near Thessalonica, and it's a bad situation. There are these riots going on. People are very unhappy Um, with what Paul is doing and with the church. And it gets so bad that Paul actually has to leave. He's sent away. He has to flee. But he doesn't want the church to be left without leadership, so he leaves Timothy behind to help serve the church. So even as a very young man, there's these riots going on. It's a really messy situation. And Paul trusts Timothy to kind of steady the ship during that. Later on, Timothy rejoins him. They work together in Corinth. Paul sends Timothy out to Macedonia with Erastus to serve the churches there. And then later on in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that he is sending Timothy, his beloved and faithful child, um, to help correct some of the issues in Corinth. And if you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was a pretty problematic church, right? They got two whole letters. So there were a lot of issues there. The fact that he's sending Timothy is another vote of confidence. And then uh, lastly, Paul mentions Timothy in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, in the beginning of Colossians. Timothy is with Paul, helping him as he writes those letters. So Timothy is a young pastor. Some speculate he may have been in his 30s when Paul was writing to him. But despite his age, he's often entrusted with difficult tasks by Paul. And in this particular instance, he seems to have been sent to the church at Ephesus. This is the church from Ephesians. Uh, He's going there to help combat some false doctrine and to correct some moral and theological failures in the leadership of the Ephesian church. The Ephesians are struggling with false doctrine, and with poor spiritual leadership. So Timothy's going to kill two birds with one stone. He is a model of a humble, godly leader, and he's going to correct some of the uh, issues that they have had crop up in their doctrine. So Paul gives advice to Timothy about both of these things. These themes, spiritual leadership, and sound doctrine are going to be recurring themes in our study of 1 Timothy. Okay, so we've talked about some of the background. Let's look at the actual verse now. Let's go to 1 Timothy Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So to be clear, I don't think Paul's trying to do a lot of theology here. He's not trying to teach a lot of stuff here. He's just addressing his letter, and he's giving a brief word of encouragement to Timothy. But even though Paul isn't necessarily trying to do a lot of theological work here, we can still draw important implications from what he says. His words here are going to give us some important insight into how Paul views himself and his role in the early church, and we can also look at what he says to encourage Timothy. We can think about why that would have been encouraging to Timothy and how it ought to be encouraging to us as 21st century Christians. Okay, so I've got two points out of this text. The first point, Paul's authority comes from God. So he begins by addressing Paul, and he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. So he's doing two things here. First, he's establishing his credentials. He's establishing why you should listen to what he's going to say. Why do we care about what Paul says about how to run a church? It's like how I might say, as a pianist, I think you should get that piano. You know, I'm establishing that I have some kind of insight or experience. There's something about me that makes what I'm about to say relevant to whatever the issue is. Uh, But Paul's not just establishing his credibility. He's also establishing his authority. As an apostle, his words here are a direct revelation from God. So what we're going to study is not just Paul's opinion on the best way to run the church. It is a message from God. Not everything that the apostles said or did was infallible, but when he's writing here as an apostle, when he is writing scripture, we take these words, just like everything else in the Bible, as the inspired, the inerrant, infallible word of God. So as he begins this letter, he's grounding the authority and the credibility of what he's about to say in the fact that God has appointed him by command to be an apostle. And this is interesting to me. Because at this point in his life, again, remember, this is after the book of Acts. He's already kind of like a rock star in the early church. He could have appealed to so many different things um, to justify what he's going to say. He could have said, Paul, an incredibly successful church planner. Or he could have said, Paul, one who has a proven track record of ministry success. He could have said, Paul, one who has been persecuted for the faith. Or, Paul, your spiritual father. But he doesn't appeal to any of those things. He doesn't appeal to his own accomplishments. He doesn't appeal to his own abilities. He doesn't appeal to anything intrinsic to himself, he chooses to appeal to the fact that he is an apostle, and he's not an apostle because he worked hard to earn the rank, or he's not an apostle because he deserves it, or he earned it, right? He says he's an apostle solely because God, in his sovereignty, chose Paul by command to be his instrument. So this is a helpful reminder for us as we begin this series, that the church does not belong to us, but it belongs to God. The church is his idea. It's not something we came up with. We Are stewards of this church, but we're not the true owners. We belong to this church, but the church ultimately doesn't belong to us. And so, in light of this, we have an obligation to operate and to steward God's church in accordance with the instructions that we find in His Word. It's not up to us to decide how we think it would be best to do church. We need to be faithful to what God has laid out in His Word. And this is important for us to keep in mind because God doesn't always call us to operate the church the same way that we operate secular organizations. For example, let's think about leadership. When we select leaders in a secular context, whether it's a businessman or a football coach or a politician, what are we looking for? We're looking for charismatic guys, we're looking for energetic, driven people. We want people with the proven track records of success. We want people who can articulate a bold vision for whatever we're doing. And if we're being honest we'll take someone who's a little rough around the edges. You know, we'll take someone, maybe they're not the nicest guy. Maybe he's not the most upstanding guy. He's not the most faithful husband or the most loving father. But if he gets the job done, if if the bottom line is good, then that's all that matters when we're selecting these leaders. But this is the exact opposite of how things are supposed to go in the church. This is radically different from the leadership requirements that Paul provides in 1 Timothy. Taylor's going to talk about this in a few weeks, but Paul lays out the qualifications for elders, And he requires one skill, he requires one gift that they must have, and that's the ability to teach. They don't have to be a world-class teacher, they don't have to be super highly educated, they don't have to be, you know, a phenomenal orator, they just need to have the ability to teach, and everything else is about character, it's about spiritual maturity, it's about the way that they manage their household, it's about the way that they serve in their community. So the takeaway here, as Taylor's going to discuss in a few weeks, is that the character of a church leader is more important than their gifting. And if we elevate a gifted individual to leadership who is lacking in character, we will set ourselves up for disaster. So many of the problems that we read about in churches from the New Testament all the way up to today are due to poor spiritual leadership. They're due to a misunderstanding of who is supposed to lead the church and how they're supposed to lead it. We apply secular standards when we select church leaders and this inevitably sets up our churches and our denominations for failure. And we as Southern Baptists should know this as well as anyone, right? When the church allows wolves in sheep's clothing to take up offices of leadership, when we elevate talented or gifted men to leadership roles who lack the character and the integrity and the accountability that's required in Scripture, it can do immeasurable damage. This was the case in the Ephesian church. This is the whole reason why Timothy is going. This is the whole reason why Paul is writing this letter, and it continues to be the case in many churches today. So this series is going to help us think clearly about where authority in the church comes from, who ought to lead the church, and how they ought to lead it. And these are some of the most important things that we can get right as a church. Okay, so point one, Paul's authority comes from God. Point two is his encouragement to Timothy. Christian hope is unlike worldly hope. So Paul moves, in the second half of verse one, he he moves to encourage Timothy. He refers to Jesus as Christ, Jesus, our hope. And it may seem like it's just a passing comment. This is just how Paul describes Jesus. But it's worth pausing for a moment for us to reflect on what it means for Christ to be our hope. Uh, Paul knows that he's sending Timothy into a tough spot. He wants to encourage him. And he chooses to remind him of the hope that we have in Christ. So we need to think about what that means. Uh, I'm sure many of you have heard this before. But we have to remember that hope in a Christian sense, hope in a biblical sense, the kind of hope that Paul is talking about here, is not necessarily like the hope that we use in everyday, worldly sense. When we think about worldly hope, it's a hope that's characterized by uncertainty. You know, I might say, I hope that the Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year. Do I expect them to? No. Am I banking on them winning? No. I hope that they do. I don't think it's likely, but I hope that they do. When we say hope, there's an implied uncertainty. And if we say that we're hoping for something to happen, if that's the word that we choose, there's often an implicit, almost a subconscious understanding that whatever it is that we're hoping for is not very likely. Hope is kind of like a last, uh, a last resort when we use the word hope. But this is not Christian hope. This is not what Paul means at all when he says that Christ Jesus is our hope. One commentator says that the hope that Paul is referencing here is the fully confident expectation of an as-yet-unrealized fulfillment. So to unpack that a little bit, Christian hope, what, what Paul's talking about here, is more like what we say when we talk about being pregnant. Right? Mary Catherine and I don't say that we're hoping to have twins in the fall. That would be kind of weird, right? We say that we're expecting. That's the word that we use, expecting. And there's implied with inspecting, not a sense of uncertainty, but an eagerness right, and an anticipation. There's a joy and there's an excitement that comes with the word Expectation that we don't always associate with hope. William Mounts, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, says this, Unlike secular apathy and pessimism, Christian hope is sure. It is never a fearful dreading of what lies ahead. Rather, it is an eager and confident anticipation of what God has in store for believers. It is not so much a subjective emotion as an objective fact. It is sure because it is centered on Christ. It is a gracious gift of God. So in summary, Christian hope is the confident assurance that what God has promised will without fail come to pass. It is an eager expectation of Christ's return and the fulfillment of all God's promises. And just to be clear, we need to remind ourselves of what that promise actually is. It's not just some vague platitude that everything's going to work out in the end and we'll all go to heaven and play harps on the clouds with the angels, right? It's concrete. to the thirsty i will give from the spring of the water of life without payment the one who conquers will have this heritage and i will be his god and he will be my son this is the great hope right this is the great promise of our faith and we know that just as in the days of joshua not one word of all the good that god has promised will fail to come to pass not one word Will fail. These words are trustworthy and true. And this is what it means for Christ to be our hope. This is what Paul is reminding Timothy of in this passage. This is the day that we look towards with eager expectation and with confident assurance. This is our hope as Christians. When you look at the early church, one of the things that set them apart from the culture around them was this radical sense of hope. They lived in a very negative, a very cynical, a very pessimistic world uh, if you study the religion and the popular philosophies of their day it's it's very negative there's a lot of uh, despair there's anxiety among the people there's very little hope in that world and so this hope this idea that there's something more to life that there's something better waiting for us in this broken unjust world in which we live was something that set christianity apart from the world around it it made it compelling to many people but it also made it seem foolish or childish and naive to others. But either way, it was abundantly clear to the ancient world that Christians were a people who put their hope not in worldly things, but in Christ and in Christ alone. And I wonder if that's true of the church today. Is it true of the church in America today? Are we a people who are defined by our hope in Christ, by our eager expectation of the return of Christ? Do we even really think about it much at all during our daily lives? I know this is true of the church in many parts of Africa, of the church in Latin America, of the church in South Korea, of the church in China. Obviously, no church is perfect, but when you look at the church in many parts of the majority world, there's this burning sense of hope in Christ that you cannot miss. In the depths of abject poverty, in the midst of war, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of persecution, the hope of Christ shines through in many of their churches. And I just wonder, is that true of us here? Are we a people who are defined by our radical hope in Christ. Do we stand out at all from the culture around us, or are we putting our hope in the exact same things that everyone else is putting their hope in? In our money, in our families, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our political leaders, our retirement plans. Though none of us would say this outright, what I think we often say with the way that we live our lives is that hoping in Christ is our backup plan. It's as though if if something goes terribly wrong, if everything's ripped away from us, if I lose my family, if I lose my job, if I lose my house, my health, then I can cling to Christ, right? In the middle of the storm, I can cling to Christ. But while I've still got all these good things, while things are still going well, I'm going to put my hope in them instead. I can hope in Christ if things go bad, but when things are good, I'm going to hope in myself. We reduce the hope of Christ to a break glass in case of emergency type of thing. I think the truth is that for a lot of us, it's sometimes easier to put our hope in Christ during seasons of affliction than it is for us to do so during seasons of abundance. Now, I know that there are many people in our congregation right now who are walking through seasons of affliction. We have those who have recently lost parents or lost loved ones. We have those who are struggling to put food on their tables or a roof over their heads. We have those who are facing a cancer diagnosis. We have those who are struggling with infertility and so much more. Um, And if that's where you are right now, then I hope that you're encouraged by these words, just as Timothy would have been. I hope that you're encouraged to know that no matter what happens on this earth, no matter how many things go wrong, we can always find hope in the promises of God. We have absolute assurance that the good promises of God will come to pass. Not one word will fail. They are trustworthy and true. There is nothing that can take away the hope and the security that we have in Christ but for many of us, if we're being honest, the shoe's on the other foot right now. And by the grace of God, we're blessed to be walking through seasons of abundance. And if that's the case, if that's, if that's where we are right now, then we need to be convicted by this passage. We need to ask ourselves, are we truly hoping in Christ? Are we truly living as though the glory of Christ and the eager anticipation of his return are the most important things in our lives? Or are we putting our hope in worldly things? We can't allow the good things of this life to distract us from the glory of Christ and from the the eager anticipation of His return. As Christians, we are not called to live as though hoping in Christ is our backup plan, as though hoping in Christ is just something for those who are walking through trials. Our hope in the promises of God and our eager expectation of Christ's return should shine through everything that we do in every season of our lives. Because we live in a world that is very much like ancient Rome. That same pessimism, that same negativity, that cynical approach is all over the popular philosophy of the world today. When you look at younger people, you look at people my age and younger, there's often a strong sense of hopelessness about the future. Whether you're talking about our government, our economy, or the planet itself, there's a strong undercurrent of fear, of anxiety, of pessimism about what the future holds. People do not believe that all things are working together for good. We live in a world that is filled with injustice, with corruption, with inequality, with senseless tragedies, and the church has an opportunity to say that there's something better coming, that the world will not always be this broken, that restoration and renewal are coming in Christ. But when we as Christians, and especially we as wealthier Christians, when we live our lives as though earthly things are all that matters, as though our greatest hope is in the things of this world, we miss an opportunity to display the hope of Christ to a world that desperately needs to see it. Because the uncomfortable truth is that the Bible doesn't promise all these good things to everyone. It's not a blank check that goes out to all people everywhere. The Bible makes these promises to those who are in Christ. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. God works all things together for the good of those who love Him, and who are called according to His purposes. This restoration and this healing is a gift that comes to us only through our faith in Christ. It's not something we can earn or purchase or merit. It was bought by the precious atoning blood of Christ on the cross. And this brings us to verse 2 of our text, where Paul notes that grace, mercy, and peace come to us from where? From God the Father and from Christ Jesus our Lord. The only way that we can be set free from our wickedness, the only way that we can become alive to this living hope, the hope of the gospel, the only way that we can truly receive the grace, the mercy, and the peace is to repent of our sins and to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. And then we get a preview, we get a foretaste of what it's going to be like when Christ makes all things new. When we see him bring sinners like us from death to life. When we see the Spirit take wicked, sinful hearts and conform them to the image and likeness of God's holiness. It's a preview of the cosmic recreation and renewal that is coming in Christ. It's a preview of when he makes all things new. The Bible says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. And if you want to be truly made new, if you want to be truly set free from the bondage of your sin, brought to life in that living hope, that renewal can only come through faith in Christ. And all are welcome. As Paul says, there is no person on earth that is too far gone to be renewed and restored by the blood of Christ. As Paul is going to say later on in this very epistle to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. So, the hope of Christ, the grace, the mercy, and the peace of Christ are for any and for all who will turn from their sins and submit to Him as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the rich words of encouragement and the blessed promises of hope that you have given to us. God, as we go back out into the world this week, help us to be truly alive the hope of Christ. Whether we're in seasons of affliction or seasons of abundance, God, help us to remember that our only hope in life and death is that we belong both in body and in soul to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name. Amen.